So at this point, John knew. John knew that it was over. He was doing anything to try to destroy me. I'm Sherry, and this is Outline of a Murder, the Smart True Crime Podcast. I'm Mom. And I'm Elena. Switch it up again, huh? Yeah. Sorry, it's messing Caught me off. Sorry. I'm like, what am I supposed to say? I was waiting for you. (laughs) Your name. (laughs) Need a sticky note. Okay, so we're going to continue talking about Dirty John. And I'm super excited to get done with this. Not that Dirty John's not fascinating, but the next episode or outline, like we call, will be the start of Ted Bundy. So, three parts on that, and then we'll finish up with the most uh, scariest serial killer I've ever, I don't know if studied is the word to use, but um, one of the scariest that I think has ever been alive. So, it's going to be really, really good to finish off the season. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> I don't know who it is. <laughs> but mom, mom. Okay, so we last finished where... We've got um, Deborah and John living on Balboa Island, which now you're from California. Why is it named Balboa? Do you know? No, I don't know. Okay. okay. Newport just has all the rich. I wonder if it's after, you know, Rocky. I mean, seriously. I think no, it was named good... Balboa before. Whatever. So maybe the writers <laughs> of that picked came Bal- from Balboa. I mean, I think but it's a good. It's like a very. Intense, firm, masculine name. Maybe because Rocky. I don't know. Okay. So (laughs) they're living there. You know, Tara and her have had a break in the relationship. And, you know, they're in their routine. But Christmas is coming. So, you know, um, Tara and her boyfriend went back to Las Vegas. What are they going to do with Christmas? Um, They were supposed to have Christmas at Deborah's oldest daughter's house, and her name's Nicole. So I guess Jacqueline and Tara were probably more comfortable, and they were the main characters in this series. Um, We don't know much about Nicole, uh, but we do know that Jacqueline at this point has had enough of John Meehan. So she's like, I don't even want to go to Christmas with him there. So she's pretty much done with him. But Tara really wanted to see her family, especially her niece, and um, her nephews, I believe. Nieces and nephews. So during that time, remember the therapist. They have the therapist. It's like, you know, you need to have healthier boundaries and all that. So her, uh, Deborah, and Tara meet. And we're going to set up some healthy boundaries for Christmas and how Tara and John can hopefully, you know, stay apart or get along a little bit. And so basically, uh, it was agreed that John would stay away from the nieces and nephews. So that tells me that Tara thought he was some type of threat. Wow. Yeah. So I don't know if it's because I don't know you, so I don't want you near, you know, my nieces and nephews, or did she fear he was dangerous? Because she did see his anger. So it was Deborah's decision. Deborah and Tara agreed. Yeah, with the therapist, that John would stay away from the kids. That's very interesting. I don't think that's a healthy boundary. That's preventing socialization from your little ones. (laughs) Well, I mean, I can understand. I mean, if I saw his anger, you know, when she discovered his box of things, and he's a complete stranger, he's only two months into the relationship, uh, I'd be like, don't come near the kids, too. It would be weird, though, and I don't know how it'd be possible. I remember, I don't want to say which family member, it's none of you here, but um, this family member has a sister, and, you know, I believe in people changing their lives, but um, she came home from prison, and just because of the charges, I basically threatened everybody if she was ever left alone with my kid, ever. So, I I don't know, I, I would probably be more like, I don't want you near the kids, or don't be alone with the kids, something like that. Right. So that was the agreement, and um, I don't know if Deborah had any intention of keeping that agreement because 
One thing that she said endeared John to her was that he would dote on babies and dogs and then play wrestle with her grandkids. So what that tells me is they already have a relationship, he does, with the grandkids. Which and, he might have forced well, and just again, ignored. He, you know, he would have been fine making friends with the kids and the dogs. I mean, that probably would be part of his picture, or maybe he actually liked dogs. I don't know. Or charm them. Yeah. Trust them. Be very charming. Uh, now, I don't know if it's sure with the Netflix series, if they added um, for the sake of the story. So I don't know if this was real life or if they just, you know, built that in there. But basically, he arrived with a bunch of presents. So he was carrying them in, not Deborah. And so, of course, the kids are going to immediately run to him because he has the presents. So I don't know if that's what happened for sure in real life, but they immediately surrounded him. They're all excited, and Tara had a breakdown. I mean, broke down. And she confronted her mom because they had this agreement that he would not hang out with the kids. She said, I don't like him. There's something about him. So her gut is telling her something's wrong. And I bet it was really confusing for her because if she was uh, as nice as, you know, they say, and, you know, she might have felt bad too about feeling this way, you know, but at the same time, she's like, something is wrong here. That, like, that would have been confusing for me. It's sad that she didn't listen to her daughter. It is sad. But it makes you wonder their relationship, though. They could have a close relationship. How many people have you known that even a man or a woman, friends, they don't see what you see from the outside? But my kids, I listen to my kids, though. Mm-hmm. True. But, but you might be rare. Well, and the thing is, is that... Well, would you? Yes. Yeah, it is interesting... And it shows me a pattern, probably, in their relationship. Mm -hmm. And the fact that her mother broke her word. So, that makes me wonder if she's done it before. Well, she sort of was forced to break her word. He came in with presents. She could have carried the presents. Yeah, she could have. Yeah. And so, I mean... But she's a people pleaser, so maybe he did force his way. Well, I'm just going to come with you just drop off the presents and she didn't want to say no it doesn't sound like that's how it was in the the series and i can't remember from the podcast it basically um sounds like that that they were both going to come and he just grabbed the presents and she had nothing no problem with it and so tara has been in las vegas and then you have where he's already developed this relationship with the grandkids so it almost makes you wonder if she just said yes that's fine and then maybe thought once they got together, Tara would see how good he was with the grandkids. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm true. wondering. Manipulation. Yeah. So I know people keeping their word is a huge core value for me, and I would have been furious. I wouldn't have broke down crying. I would have been like all over the place. So, um, or I would have just said, "See you later. I'm out of here." You know, right, I would right. have just left. Um, now, she, Tara did say that she figured her family thought she was over emotional. And, and she, you know, she was that type of personality, but her gut was screaming that something was wrong. And so in early 2015, she re- returned home and would no longer talk to her mom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so, sad. Yeah. That is sad. Yep. So I don't remember if this is when it came out that they were married, um, but everyone knew John was there to stay. So now what do you do? Well, Jacqueline my fave, being the D personality that she is, uh, she determined to get to the bottom of who John Meehan really was. And uh, she had several questions. I thought they were good questions. Why were uh, his finger fingernails always dirty? And the reason she wanted to know that is she, at the time, worked in cells for a plastic surgeon. She was around doctors all the time. They never had dirty fingernails. So that was a question. Uh, two, why did she always? Uh, why did he always wear scrubs? So again, the doctors she were around, she was around. They only wore scrubs when they were working or going to do surgery. No doctor, no MD, just went around in their scrubs. So she said it felt like he was wearing a costume. Yeah, yeah and he his, was. His scrubs were falling apart too. That bothered her. Why were his scrubs sprayed around the heels? So she said this can sometimes happen to like receptionists that have to wear scrubs. 
you know, they're walking back and forth and so they'll get frayed. But again, doctors, theirs were always top notch and he was always uh, running errands in his scrubs wearing tennis shoes, tennis shoes and uh, that wasn't normal. And then what about the text messages supposedly from her mom? So I thought this was interesting. She had started receiving messages that used slang words and misspelled words, and her mother did not talk like that nor text like that. So she knew immediately yeah. when her mother. Yeah. So he's he's already texting her like it's Deborah. That's weird. But he doesn't know her clearly. Right. Yeah. But why would he do that? And I'm curious, what was he saying? Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it didn't really get into that a lot. Now, later we know he was actually threatening her and things through text messages, but that was kind of weird that he would even do that. And then this one's really interesting. Why was her mom always missing money from her wallet? She wondered if Jacqueline had gotten some, which she wouldn't have cared, but Jacqueline hadn't. So to me, Jacqueline seeing the setup, he's pretending to be her mom and money's always missing. Did she ask Jacqueline about the money? Yeah, and Jacqueline told her I didn't and take it. that's not a red flag to her? So then I think Deborah would probably be like, well, we're married, which Jacqueline didn't know at the time. So right. if he wants to take money, that's fine. You that's know what I mean? True. So she probably wouldn't have thought too much about it. That's and true. She was very giving, too. I think the most interesting thing she noticed was the dirty fingernails. I wouldn't have noticed that. Clothes, mm-hmm. wearing scrubs, the mm-hmm. money, text. I would have put that together, but not the... I mean, that's a big detail. It is a big deal. She's pretty good. She's smart. Yeah. So she took action. What'd she do? (laughs) She put a magnetic tracker on her mom's Tesla to see exactly where he was going in the day. Like, what was he doing with his time? Unfortunately, nothing showed up. Um, He did go to some doctor's offices in Southern California, which I thought was weird. Why? And then um, food places, post office, and other mundane places, but nowhere to alert her, you know, that he was doing anything bad. But when I was researching and watching the show, it's like, okay, why was he going to doctor's offices? Well, well, job interviews, maybe. What was his, did they ever, did he actually work? Did he have a profession? It didn't seem like it. It seemed like he did not work, but he Mm -hmm. would pretend that he was working or he played video games and run errands for her. But I'm like, so did he like wonder if maybe in the GPS she would know where she he was going? Or? So he sat in front of a doctor's I don't office. No, it's weird. Or maybe, as you know, everybody knows. It's watched the series. He had a drug addiction, prescription drugs. So it makes me wonder if he was going to these doctor's offices for that. Oh, I forgot about that. One hundred percent. Yeah. So either stealing them or uh, doctor hopping to get medications. Yeah. Right. And Jacqueline said that she told Deborah about the tracker, that she was going to put it on her car, but Deborah doesn't remember that. Oh, she doesn't? Mm-mm. No. And Jacqueline did tell Tara that she was going to do it, but Tara was worried that John might hurt her mom if he found out. So, Jeez. yeah, she, she thinks that he's dangerous. So Tara definitely thinks that he's dangerous. Um, so I don't know. I just thought that was interesting that Deborah didn't remember that. I think I would remember I, if I my would. son said, hey, I'm going to put a tracker on Mike's car. You know, like, I, I think that's something I would remember. I would remember. Yeah. I, I can't say because I'm very forgetful these days. So I feel I, like I would. There is a murder involved in this story. And um, it was in 1984. Is 20 years before John even came into the picture. It was March 8th. And Deborah's sister, Cindy was at her Laguna, is it Nigel? Nigel, California? Nigel. Oh, it is Nigel? Okay. With her husband, Billy Vickers. And I guess they had just sold the home, and they were in the process of separating. And she was sitting at the kitchen table, and Billy walked up to her and shot her in the back of the head at close range, and then shot himself in the stomach. In the stomach? Mm Mm-hmm. That's weird. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he wanted the pain? I have ideas on it. I can't really, you know, say for sure. Robbery? Uh, No. He said he was trying to commit suicide. I doubt that because if you want to make sure that you kill yourself, it's not the stomach. It's the head. Or the heart. Right. So, 
to me, it feels like, now again, being a sus- the suspicious person that I am, it sounds like he shot her in the back of the head and he wanted to have the sympathy in the courts and shot himself in the stomach like he was trying to kill himself. Like, I think he wanted people to believe he was going to kill himself. But to me, shooting yourself in the stomach's not going to do it. Both actions are very cowardly. Yeah. Back of the head, in the stomach. Yeah. And that's so painful. I heard the stomach is extremely painful. Right. I hope it was. I do, too. And he actually lived. He uh, called emergency services. They arrested him. (laughs) And then Cindy... uh, Oh, not Cindy, because she's gone. Right. Deborah's uh, mother, Arlene, testified on his behalf. Wow. Now, this is where, again, I get irritated. So, you know, like mm-hmm. on episode or outline number two, where we talked about the two girls and being Christian. And remember, it made me irritated that they immediately forgave this sicko, which I'm all about forgiveness, but let's have a little bit of time. <laughs> you know, right. Like, we need time to process here. And so Arlene did. She testified on his behalf. She said that she loved him and didn't believe that he was in his right ma- uh, right mind. And as you can imagine, the prosecutor was stunned. Well, she liked John, too. Uh-huh. She did. So you love your uh, son-in-laws. Right. Would you? I could see you doing that. It depends what I perceive as the truth, I guess. So, I, if we if deserve was, to be shot in the head, you right. would testify? If it was my son-in-laws, I would be angry. I'd testify against him. Against him? Yeah. To say. Because if you, you're around someone all these years and they're normal, and then the next minute they kill one of my children. So, then you start doubting all the... Yes. The whole... Okay, yeah. Was it set up? Was it a real relationship? Was gotcha. It, yeah. And I think uh, that... I don't know this for a fact, but from looking at it a little bit, because there wasn't a lot on it, because you know he's in the 80s, so there wasn't a lot on the, the show either about it, but he, it sounded like he was extremely controlling her uh, husband, and Cindy, if she was anything like Deborah or Tara, uh, or even Arlene, she might have kept a lot of that to herself, or she may not have known how dangerous he was, yeah. because it's a control thing. And I remember um, talking to a lady who had been in a marriage for a while. And from everything outside, they appeared to be happy, successful, young family. But I could tell, I could tell something was up with the guy. I uh, thought he was greedy and controlling, and I didn't like him. I liked her, and she was a sweetheart, S-I, sweetheart. And um, when they finally broke up, separated because he beat the crap out of her when they were on vacation and she was stuck in a closet in a hotel room calling downstairs to get help um i wasn't surprised and even then she was going to go have dinner with him to try to reconcile once she got back to the states because he left her there and took everything she had no money no cards no nothing that was to me control they get back she's actually going to have dinner with him and discuss what happened and my daughter in love actually had a dream and in the dream they were sitting and she didn't know they were gonna have dinner and they were sitting at a table and he was like yeah 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 you know like listening to her and they were gonna work it out but she like could hear his thoughts in the dream and the thoughts were basically like oh my gosh why did I agree to this why did we ever marry she's you know blah blah and so she told this lady about the dream and she decided not to have dinner with them and they ended up divorcing. But I remember um, going to lunch with her with another friend to see how she was doing. And she was telling us certain things she had to do for him. And I'm looking at her and I said, you know that's not normal, right? Like, that's not normal. What do you mean? Yeah, so I would like break down, you know, that's, that's not normal behavior. You shouldn't have to do that as a wife. And she had no idea. People abuse though. Yeah, so it makes you wonder, did Cindy not know how he was acting wasn't normal because they were um, childhood sweethearts. I was about to say, especially if really young. Yeah. And then, or she was going to leave and didn't know. And, but she probably got tired of the control. That's yeah. what it sounds like. She got tired of the control, but I don't think she recognized the red flags that he was dangerous, mm-hmm. like dangerous, because it seemed so normal. 
strange both sisters. Yeah. Basically the same way. Yeah. I'd like to know about the dad. They didn't right. bring out the dad. He's not mentioned at all. I, I'm curious what that looked like. I've also noticed a pattern with the victims. They're all S's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there are some C's out there that have been murdered. I'm sure there's some, you know, but I have done so much mentoring, again, as a pastor, you know, like in a ministry situation where it is dominant S's, and they will keep going back to these dangerous people. Hmm. So it's very interesting, and... Wait, you're, no, I-S, okay. She's ID. Oh, ID. Yeah, I was thinking, I thought I was an S. I thought you were too. Mm-mm, I did. <laughs> so um, the prosecutor also mm-hmm. felt that Arlene put her daughter Cindy in a negative light. And this is a quote. She said, I don't know the dynamics of the family. I could never understand that. Why say bad things about the victim? Wow. And so when Cindy and Billy separated, Arlene took Billy um, and their son Shad to live with her. So get this. Arlene takes the killer into her house. Of her daughter. That murdered her daughter and their child, Shad. Mental issues, I'm, I would assume. But Deborah has the same tendency. Yeah. Yeah. Taking. And to me, this is beyond faith. I'm sorry. But if, uh, if someone killed, you know, my family member, there is no way in hell that person would come live with me. No. There's no way. And so maybe I can understand the dynamics. Maybe I could see, you know, heat of the moment. But I definitely wouldn't let them, and they would need to go to jail. They would need to go to jail. So I just think that's weird. And I dang sure wouldn't want Billy near my grandson. No. No. So I don't, it's just strange. So because of Arlene um, testifying, the jury acquitted him of murder but they deadlocked on the manslaughter charge. And so he finally pled guilty. He received a five-year sentence. He was released after serving less than three years in prison. So during this time, Deborah actually took Shad in and raised him, treated him like her own son. Uh, And she still, all of them still see Billy to this day at events at the church. So. Oh boy. And I'm not sure if he goes to that church, but in the series, you know, you have where Deborah and John are at the church and they see Arlene talking to this man, remember? And John's like, who's that? And she said, that's Billy. So probably at this point he knew the story and what was going on, which I bet he thought was funny. You know, can't put words into his mouth. Well, kind of can because he's dead. But, you know, I I think he's like, wow, this family is like easy targets. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So, um, Arlene had completely forgiven him, and she does publicly speak about forgiveness. But I, to me, and, you know, I have like a whole course, a whole training on forgiveness, you know, called the Forgiveness Clinic. And I specifically talk about how forgiveness is not excusing. It's not ignoring. You don't even have to accept someone back into your life if they're dangerous. And, they're, and what true repentance looks like. So maybe Billy's got true repentance. Maybe he really does feel what he did was wrong and he shouldn't have done it and he has regrets. Um, so I just think it's important to say that, that forgiveness is not excusing what people do and just accepting them back into your life without significant change and repentance. Mm-hmm. And uh, because some people do, they think forgiveness means you have to have a relationship with them uh, and they will let them back in, and that's not what it means. So um, I, I hope he has repented. But um, I thought it was interesting because Deborah says that she doesn't think she can ever forgive Billy for what he did, but she's at peace about it. So it doesn't sound like she welcomed him back into her life, but it does make one wonder if this is uh, this event is what blinded her to John's true nature. Mm-hmm. Because like her mom was so forgiving due to her Christian faith, maybe she felt the same way. And she was actually asked that by the uh, Christopher, uh, Christopher Gofford. And she does admit to seeing the great in, I think, everyone. But I would think that would always be in the back of my mind. I would filter every man I met with that. That's what I think. That's true. I would be very leery of any man 
Like I would be doing background checks, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. talking to ex-wives. Like I would be like, you know, doing all that. I would too, I think. But it has to be personality. And, and the way she was raised, maybe. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah, because no his sister way. Cindy was like that. Yeah. So here's what's interesting. So Shad is in the picture, and he meets John. And at first, he thought he was okay. You know, he's a good guy. But then he said something about Jacqueline. John did. He said, I could take her out from a thousand yards. And he wasn't kidding. So he tried to play it off. But both Deborah and Shad were like, what the heck? You know, they were shocked. Again, I would be like, okay, this isn't normal. Um, But it alarmed him. It alarmed Shad, obviously. And especially considering that John knew how his mother was killed. Yeah. So it was very insensitive. And um, so not long after that, Shad joined his cousin in their sleuthing. And did some digging of his own. Oh, he did? How mm-hmm. old was he? Probably young 20s, I'm thinking. 20s? Yeah. So, he basically put together uh, a trail of wronged ex-lovers, lover jail stints, drug use, etc. And he did try to warn Deborah and arm her with what he found out, but it backfired. So, Deborah told John, and then John turned his attention to threatening and harassing Shad until Shad finally backed off. Oh, oh no. Again, Why didn't you... listen again. Yeah, didn't listen again. I Why mean, would you tell him? Yeah, right. That's interesting. Again, I mean, I don't know. I think that if there were three people, children especially, telling me the same thing, it would make me pause. At least pause. Yeah. It, But there is something where, so again, they're only mm-hmm. a few months into the relationship. And I remember teaching Kent this because I think this is important for people to know. So when you meet someone that you like and it definitely looks like this could turn into something, you're literally, the, the term lovesick is very true. Um, when you meet someone and there's that spark and you decide to start dating, you, you enter into a blind stage. Your brain dumps all these uh, chemicals, emotion, or uh, hormones. hormones, and all that. It's like dopamine's firing, oxytocin's firing, uh, serotonin, all the feel good. It's like a cocktail of like a love potion flowing through your veins, and it literally does cause you to be blind. I believe that. And it's a high. Um, I remember me and Mike did this, and we didn't sleep for like days. We would just sit all night talking, and then we'd talk all day, and then we'd like go to you know, the mall and hang out and look at, you know, back in the day when they had CDs and, you know, things right. like that. And then finally we're like, oh, man, I'm really tired. <laughs> so we would just, you know, we'd sleep. But it was interesting because it, it to me, it's like you need to know that that happens. Mm-hmm. And so I think with her personality, her kind nature, her believing in the good and everybody, plus that cocktail, plus that intense desire to finish her life off with a loving husband, I bet she just was absolutely blinded. For sure. I'm curious how her ex-husbands were. Me too. What kind of men? Well, they beat her. Some, some, because remember Tara was very protective of her because she saw her get hit. Um, saw how they treated her, and they usually would take off with a bunch of money. But it, so again, I'm thinking, okay, like if I really messed up with the first four husbands and chose losers, I, I'm thinking, I, again, I would pause, especially if everybody in my life is saying something's wrong. Especially your kids, yeah. your nephew. But she didn't. Or maybe she did pause, but she dismissed it. I don't know. It's just interesting. But... There is some good news. So even though it seemed that Shad's concern and discovery of John's past didn't work, Deborah did start thinking a little bit. Oh, okay. So it planted a seed of doubt, and it also made her curious. And she's like, okay, maybe I need to look into this. So this is March 2015, so five months after being married, she uh, or meeting him, and then three months after being married, she began to go through his documents and I guess he had like a, a place where he would put all his documents and she wasn't supposed to get in there. And she found a shocking history of seducing, 
conning and harassing women. She found many of his victims, or he found many of his victims on dating sites, like he found her posing as a doctor. Oh. All of these were in court records that she found. She also found printouts of women sharing how dangerous he was on a website called datingpsychos.com. That was. No, I, I probably need to pull it up yeah. to warn other women. And she said they said that he was a classic psychopath and don't let him in your life. Well, surely that changed her mind. Part of Deborah Newell's story was the people that she enlisted to help her leave John Meehan because she understood that the most dangerous time for someone that's in an abusive relationship is when they leave them. That's when 80 to 90 percent of the murders occur or the attacks. And so at helpguide.org, they have a great article called How to Get Out of an Abusive Relationship. And they also have one for men, Help for Men Who Are Being Abused, which to me, if you're a man that's being abused, I think it might be even harder because you have to admit that someone is exercising abuse over you. But this article goes into signs that your abuser is not changing. Uh, for example, he minimizes the abuse or denies how serious it really was. He continues to blame others for his behavior. He claims that you're the one who is abusive. He tells you that you owe him another chance. You have to push him to stay in treatment. He says that he cannot change unless you stay with him and support him. He tries to get sympathy from you, your children, or your family and friends. And he expects something from you in exchange for getting help. And he pressures you to make decisions about the relationship. So they have safety planning for abused women uh, in this article, protecting your privacy, uh, numbers and things, including domestic violence shelters, etc., and even how to protect yourself after you've left. So it's a really good article. And again, they have one uh, to help men who are being abused. And if you hear a meow, that is Joseph in this uh, short clip. So helpguide.org, go there and get the resources that you need if you're in one of those relationships. So he had a long behavior or history of this behavior from 2005 to 2014. So that's oh. when they met. And Deborah found out later that according to John's sister, Donna, he spent his first night out of prison in 2004, 2005 on Match.com looking for victims. And then at the time uh, he lived with uh, his sister, she, that's how she knew that. And then their relationship didn't end well either, him and his sister, because he treated her the same way he treated all his victims. That's interesting. Yeah. So by the time he met Deborah, there were three restraining orders against him and, and in Southern California, and others had requested them, but they didn't get them. So Deborah also discovered during this time his drug use, and at the time of the investigation, John was in the hospital from back surgery. So just to set the picture, so he had to have back surgery. Shad, you know, says, hey, you know, this guy has a criminal history, et cetera, et cetera, plans to seed of doubt. So while he's in the hospital is when she decides to go through his stuff and look at the drugs she found. I mean, this is a picture of just some of his stash. So wow. she, yeah, he found all of it. Uh, she found all of these drugs. And uh, oh, this, yeah, I mean, he was on high, you know, addictive stuff. And then datingpsychos.com, I, I uh, have never been here, so let's just put it in. Um, there it is. So dating psychos. I didn't know there was a site. Well, it doesn't come up anymore. It's just Pinterest and all that. So, oh, it was, oh, it was shut, shut down. down. Okay, that's probably why I don't have it pulled up because I couldn't find it. So so she's finding out all of this stuff while he's having back surgery. What's interesting, and again, I think that psychopaths, like we've talked about this, the dark side of emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence, number one, is the ability to gauge the emotions of those around you and how you're impacting them. So the good side of that is, you know, if you realize that you have a repetitive behavior that's maybe shutting down your spouse you know you're it's harming your relationship the good side of emotional intelligence is you can adjust yourself you know and stop doing that and grow as a person but with people like him and 
by the way, Hitler was really good at that. Um, he he could gauge his how he interacted with people based on the effect he's having them for his own purposes. But I also feel emotional intelligence is instinctive to a degree, and it's in the gut. Uh, and they have found that molecules of emotion are actually in your gut. Mm-hmm. You know, like depression for some starts in the gut. Yeah. And if they take like vitamin D and probiotics, it can help. Gut health. Yeah, gut health. And so even though he's in the hospital, his gut's telling them something's wrong. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. They're very intuitive. Psychopaths are very intuitive. Now, when they start devolving or trying to hide their evil, it it starts showing, which we'll see with Ted Bundy's story for sure. Anyway, so before he was released from the hospital, she had moved out of Balboa Island House. It's interesting he kept a lot of documents and evidence. Right. Unless he was proud of them. Or a, what do they oh, call it when a serial killers keep... Mementos. Mementos, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean... I don't... I mean, and he did keep it locked, and she got in there. So or is that confidence he knew no one would look? He had the control. Probably. They, they are very overly confident. Right. Yeah, to the point of arrogance. Yeah. So let's look a little bit at his past before we finish up the story. And um, I've got some bullet points that we could talk about for hours, which we'll discuss some stuff in our after show combo. But Donna said that John, um, this is his sister, was practically born into hustling. His dad was into all kinds of con work like bogus insurance claims and lawsuits using John as the victim. So like this series, Dirty John shows, a young John putting uh, ground glass in his taco or his yeah. meal at a restaurant and taking a bite and eating it so they could see the restaurant. Yeah. Oh no. He also threw himself into the uh, in front of a car to get um, that insurance claim. So she said that their dad trained him to con and John grew up around a bunch of scam artist friends of his dad's. But here's the thing, like obviously he had a disdain for women. Oh yeah. Is there a mom? I don't remember seeing a mom in the picture mm-hmm. in the series. There might have been. Maybe she left. Also, John was popular in school. He was really smart, too. Um, he liked grifting and manipulation. It gave him a sense of power and control, so he liked it. He liked conning people. In the late 80s, he was arrested for uh, dealing drugs, and he was exiled from California. Thought that was interesting. Exile? Yeah, as part of his plea deal. They're like, don't come back. Wait, in the 70s? 80s. 80s. Yeah. Oh, I didn't so, know they exiled. I neither. I don't anymore, I'm sure. So he went to several universities before finally enrolling in the University of Dayton School of Law. And it's here that he got his nickname, Dirty John. So then he met Tanya, his first wife, and she was a nurse in her mid-20s at this time. He told her that he was 26 when he was actually 31. And so she helped support him through nursing school. So I guess he decided law wasn't for him. He goes into nursing school. They actually have two kids together. Really? Mm-hmm. I forgot about that. So after 10 years of marriage, John wanted a divorce, and Tanya suspected that he was unfaithful. And even though his family wasn't at the wedding, and she'd been forbidden to contact them. So basically he said, you're not allowed to contact my parents. So I guess his mother is living uh, and his dad. He told her that they were addicts. So she couldn't contact him. Mom was. Wonder how true that is. It wasn't. Was Tanya tracked down his mom, and that's when she learned John's real age, his full birth name, and the drug charge that he had in California. Okay. Because at the point he's in Ohio, which I thought was interesting. It's like okay, serial killers and stuff, California, Washington, and then Ohio. It's like, what the heck is up with the states? <laughs> was he still married to her Tanya? when she went to talk to the parents? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Tanya <laughs> went home after she found this out and searched her home, and she discovered a hidden supply of surgical drugs that he should not have. He had stolen them from patients that needed them for different conditions, putting them in excruciating pain. Right. Yeah. I have a personal situation that occurred, not with me personally, but with my grandparents. Awful. Yeah. I think that's one of the worst things you can do. Yeah. Yeah. 
So here they're not getting their medications. Right. Uh, so she turned him into the police, and they started investigating him in September of 2000. In January of 2002, another investigation was started when hospital workers said that they saw him with a gun in the operating room and that he stole Demerol that he should have given a patient. So the investigator, Dennis Lucan, said that he was the most devious, dangerous, deceptive person he's ever met. So this is a cop wow. in California. They had plenty of crime to investigate. You know, not saying California is bad, but it's just a lot of people live there. And, you know, I'm sure they were busy, like Chicago or New York, you know, just the popula- population itself. So John was stripped of his license. He pled guilty, and he fled the state. So now he's a fugitive. And they track him down in Michigan, unconscious and surrounded by drug vials. So an ambulance, they were rushing him to the hospital. He woke up, unbuckled his restraints, uh, grabbed the drug kit. So he made, made sure he grabbed the, <laughs> grabbed the drug kit before he jumped out of the ambulance. Crazy. Yeah, so the ambulance is going down the road. He wakes up, where's the drugs, grabs them and jumps out. That's crazy. So the cops pursued. He knocked himself unconscious by accident. <laughs> And they handcuffed him. Wow. <laughs> so, not the brightest bulb. And then he was sentenced to six years, but he only served 17 months. He was released in 2004 and began his long history of terror against other women until he met Deborah. Now, here's the kicker. He was released from prison the second time, this, this instance, October... Oh, no, that was 2004. So he served another prison stint, it appears. He was released October 8th, 2014, because he had violated a restraining order. Two days later, he met Deborah. Two days later? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. He swept her off her feet because he knew what to say. Everything was so calculated. And then she told Fox 6 that he tended to have everything on my checklist that I was looking for. Well, don't they usually? Mm-hmm. Predators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... But uh, the sister, his sister seems normal. Yeah. And at the time, uh, they weren't talking because on the series, she couldn't get him out of her uh, motorhome. She had him... You know, he was living there. She was trying to help him and um, could not get him out. But there's, um, I don't know if I have this video to listen to. I've got a couple, um, but I don't know if this is the one. Oh, no, we're going to talk about that later. Um, but, uh, yeah, there was a video where she was being interviewed and talking about how, I mean, everything was just absolutely perfect that he did. It was like he, so it makes me wonder um, if he did research her again or was he just so good at what he did that when he saw her profile he knew she was an easy target yeah because that's only two days i wouldn't think that would give him enough time of course there's nothing else to do do the other targets say i mean were they i don't know but it is 2014 and it's amazing what you can find out on google that's true but did he i mean she's like a a po- you know popular businessman I, or businesswoman, I can totally see him seeing her profile, googling Deborah, seeing the wealth that she possesses, and maybe even coming across his mother, who is a public speaker on forgiveness because her sister was killed. Like I could see him um, getting that data in minutes. Yeah. Thanks sure. to Google. True. Okay. So she finds all of this out. Her kids, you know, have been treated like crap by him. Uh, she now has doubt. He's in, um, he's in the hospital. And this is where everyone's jaw should drop at this point. And this is why this story is so perfect for our purposes in encouraging men and women to pay attention to the red flags and their guts and don't believe these people, you know. So she left him in March of 2015, so you know, just five months after meeting him. He began an aggressive campaign of messages and phone calls, begging Deborah to take him back. He even went through terrible drug withdrawals, willing to go through all that pain just to get her back. 
So, so she left when he was in the hospital. Yes. And found all that yes. information. Yeah. And he tried to convince her that he was serious, a changed man, and he had an exp- explanation for everything. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So Deborah said on the Dirty John podcast that he always had a story. So he told me that he lied because he thought he'd lose me, that he feels so lucky that I'm such a forgiving person. I'm the love of his life, that I've made him a better person. So he basically told her everything she wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. He appealed to her kind nature and the need to nurture and make others better people. And that's, to me, that's the epitome of an S. They, They live to make people's lives better. They have, like for example, they have a rough time saying no. So if someone asks them to do something, they'll say yes, even at their own expense. And you even see it sometimes like in marriages where you've got someone that's married to an S and that S is helping the neighbors and coworkers and everybody, but never home because they're helping everybody else, you know? So it's an interesting paradox. Like one of the things I teach S's to do is to say no. When I'm mentoring, say no. I want you to tell me no right now. Oh, I can't. I mean, that's how, yes, you can. No, I can't. You just did it. You know, so it's it's very hard for them to do that. And and it worked. So they moved into a new apartment in Irvine. She took them back. Oh, boy. What a manipulator. Master manipulator. I mean, I, I just was, I, was she, I'm she, speechless. Was she talking to either of the children at this point? Yes, to a degree. <laughs> they were talking. Now, in the series... Um, he also went after Jacqueline because uh, she, you know, worked for doctors. Remember we talked about that? He started um, sending emails and harassing her at work to where she got fired. Really? Yeah. yeah, he was threatening to kill her. I mean, there was a lot of stuff going on. But, yeah, she took him back. I mean, it's it's amazing. And But here's the thing, and this is good to a degree but still so even though she loved John she was still suspicious and never really felt safe wow why would you live like that so um yeah and she missed her family so at this point John didn't want her to be with the kids especially Jacqueline and so Deborah was sneaking away to see Jacqueline and uh and John caught him so he told Deborah that he would throw Jacqueline into the ocean if it happened again. And she still stayed? Well, at this time she filed to annul the marriage. Yeah, so she'd had it. March 2016, uh, one year and three months after marrying him, she filed to annul it. That's Which, good. That's quick. Yeah, and I think it's also because he lied from the start. So she had really good grounds for annulling the marriage versus a divorce. Guess what? He'd get half. Right. True. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she had a good attorney, I'm sure. Yeah, and he did. He he entered the marriage under deceptive circumstances. He lied about everything, and I think that's one of the grounds for annulling. Mm-hmm. It used to, you couldn't have the, the marriage couldn't be consummated for annulment, but I think... Lying is definitely grounds for it. So, like all the other women he terrorized, he began terrorizing her with threatening messages, demands for money, and promises to ruin her. She requested a restraining order and was denied. And he even stole her car and tried to burn it to the grounds, but they just didn't take the behavior serious. It's interesting she was denied restraining order. It is interesting to me, too, because of his criminal background. Yes. And this was 2015? Yeah. That is, 16. Oh, 16. Yeah, because I, now I know the last two years it's been easier to get um, those. I, again, I think with his criminal history and his history of harassing women, yeah. she would have been able to get it, especially with her car kidna- you know, her car kidnapped. He kidnapped her car uh, and, and tried to burn it. it to the ground. There was no evidence mm-hmm. it was him, but who else is it going to be? Who else has the key? You know, like, there were just things that, to me, it was common sense. Now, knowing personally of working with a lady who was trying to get away from a man who um, cut off her hair and poured bleach down her face, uh, tried to burn her house down when she moved out and slit her tires. Wow. uh, She couldn't get one. And I remember asking the cop, what's it going to take? Is it going to take her dead before she can get a restraining order? And the cop said, 
uh, where I live, New Mexico, that you basically have to be beaten almost to death before you can get a restraining order. That's a shame. And I was like, why? And she said, because people will take advantage of the system and try to ruin people's lives by putting restraining orders against them when they're not deserved. So now it's gone the other way where you almost have to be killed before you can get one. That happens in a lot of different kind of cases. Yeah. Falsifying. But when you have proof he's abusive and he's a and the history. And a drug addict. I mean, that's pretty much a no-brainer, I think. I would think so, too. Well, it makes you think, like, what did he do to all the other women who actually were able to get um, restraining, restraining orders? And, of course, the state. It does. It makes you wonder if maybe he did hit them or abuse them for them to be able to get it. Because some didn't, remember? Mm-hmm. Some got restraining orders. Some didn't get them. So it makes me wonder if maybe he was violent. I don't know. I don't know if he was. Um, so... At this point, everybody's on edge, you know, and every much has pretty much figured out John. And so they thought if he went after anybody, uh, it'd either be Deborah or Jacqueline. Because Jacqueline was like a thorn in his side. From the start, she was a jerk, and he could not control her. So she's the most vocal. In fact, Shad said the last person on earth I'd ever think would send John to hell would be Tara. I agree. And uh, I'll pull her picture back up here. But, okay, so at this point in the story, John is living in Nevada. And Jacqueline swore she saw his car parked near her apartment in California one evening. So she warned her sister, who happened to be in town, to be careful. And I think that Jacqueline was really the only one that at this point knew how far he would go. I think others were scared, but I think Jacqueline knew he would probably try to hurt somebody. So at the time, Tara worked at a dog kennel, and it seems at this point that she had moved to an apartment in Newport, so I think she no no longer lives in Las Vegas. I think she's now in California, but it was kind of hard to tell. But she had parked her car in the parking lot outside her apartment when suddenly she felt an arm go around her waist and heard John's voice say, do you remember me? And he had a knife. So he tried to get her in the car and she started screaming. So he covered her mouth and she bit him as hard as she could. And then the fight was on. This was in daylight? Yeah. Yeah. Daylight in a parking lot. And so he wrestled her to the ground, but Tara was able to defend herself because she's wearing heavy rain boots and so she kicked the knife out of John's hand, grabbed it, and started stabbing him 13 times, including, quote, the kill shot through the eye. Wow. That's what I said. It's like... Was it emotion or she was aiming? She aimed for the eye. Really? So, he, and it's interesting why she aimed for the eye. But this little Tara, sweetheart, sweetheart is like stabbing him 13 and then has the presence of mind right. to go for right. the eye. So this 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 is amazing. Now, he didn't die immediately. Uh, it did stop the attack and it led to his eventual death when his other sister Karen had him taken off life support due to no brain activity. Now, Tara was hurt and wounded as you can see in the picture. Um, and her dog was there. Uh, the dog in the picture. And um he, uh, the dog, I don't know if it's a, a she or a he, was biting him on the ankle, trying to, to help Tara. So, uh, <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, they, they get her to the hospital. She's hurt and wounded. A neighbor came out when they saw what was going on, and they wrapped her wound in a beach towel. And Tara called Deborah and said, I'm really, really sorry. I think I killed your husband. <sighs> She called her mother to tell her that, not I'm hurt or Mm-mm. going to the wow. hospital. I apologize. That's an S. Yeah. yeah. So here's the deal. John purposefully picked Tara. He was there to kill her to get back at Deborah. And I don't think people realize, you know, like our first outline of Elsie Underwood, it's not enough to kill the person who hurt you. For these people, they want to hurt you first. So they're going to hurt people around you to make your life miserable and hurt you as much as possible. So for people like John and Elsie Underwood, it's I'm going to destroy you. It's not just kill you. I'm going to destroy you. And he picked the weakest link Mm -hmm. that he thought would be submissive. But 
Which I think is interesting because he didn't go after the D personality because he figured Jacqueline would probably put up a fight, right, man. Right. Uh, but he went after the sweet ass, like it, like her mom. So this also for those that you know maybe victims right now maybe are looking at some red flags or have that gut feeling or maybe being told by others. It's not just for yourself; it's for your family, your others potentially too, and your friends it too. too often. Yeah, yeah, and. I don't think you see that as much like in true crime shows where you have someone that goes after everybody else. Uh, But I do remember when we were dealing with that situation personally, um, I am always aware of my surroundings, but I was very much aware of my surroundings. And because I figured if he went after anybody, it was going to be me because he had her under control. I'm the one that's like, you know, you need to leave her alone. And I remember he said, you're the devil. And I just started laughing at him. So yeah. I I was aware that, you know, I might be in danger. Um, I was banking on he legitimately liked Mike, and he was also scared of Mike. And so um, I, I felt that, you know, if anything was going to happen, I was going to be by myself. But I was hoping that he would be scared enough of Mike to know that Mike would probably go and take care of business. Some abusers are wait for years. They do for revenge, which is fascinating. They do. Like Elsie Underwood waited a year before mm-hmm. he started going after yeah. uh, wonder, the case. Wonder family. what the triggers are. I, mean, I think they just sit there and plot it and think about it and think the about hate it. Grows and it grows, grows on mm-hmm. the family or the mm-hmm. friend. Or the yeah, crazy. yeah. So, um, he definitely um, underestimated the sweetheart of the family, the baby. She was the baby. Uh, He thought she was the weakest and would be the easiest to kill. But what he didn't know is that she faithfully, religiously watched The Walking Dead and studied how they killed zombies on the show. And she knew the eye shot or brain shot would kill a zombie instantly, which is why she went for John's eye in That's the struggle. Not funny, but it is fascinating. <laughs> That's good for her. So I don't know if she believes in zombies, but she definitely studied how to kill them, and it saved her life. The Walking Dead saved her life. Well, and that type of personality watching that type of show. <laughs> yeah. A lot yeah. of crime shows, they, they show you. How, yeah, how to handle things, but yeah. good for her. Yeah. So, um, the biggest question in all of this is why did Deborah ignore the clear red flags? Why was she so bad at picking uh, potential partners? And most importantly, why did she go back after knowing how much he lied to her? And so, I do want to pull this up. I meant to pull this up before we got here today. And this is in her own words. And um, let me just grab the the uh, link real quick but you know again I think part of it was he knew how to talk to her he knew exactly what she needed to hear and so he was able to use that to his advantage um, even but, though he's dead though they're all gonna this is something that'll just go away for about a month or two Sorry I definitely that. started to see a lot of red flags as quickly as we had fallen in love it unraveled I learned that John was not a doctor nor an anesthesiologist, but he was a nurse. I also found out that he had spent time in prison and he had a drug problem, heroin and prescription drugs. Not only had I found out that he had been in jail, but that he had just gotten out a couple days before we met and a few days later went on a date. When it came to John, I was 100% deceived. With John, I had no idea what to do. I was stuck. She said she found out. What was the first thing that you found out that was really alarming to you? Well, the first thing, I think I went to the mailbox, and there was this letter, and it was from an inmate um, at Theo Lacey. And I opened it, and he ran up and grabbed it out of my hand as as fast as he could. It was to him? It was to him. Yeah. And he said, that's fraud. And I said, okay, but what's this all about? And I was starting to see, things were starting to unravel. A different person slowly evolving. And 
that's when I knew I had made a huge well, you, mistake. You, you knew he lied about a lot, so why were you still staying once it started to unravel? Well, I went and got professional help and asked, what should I do? They told me what this, what he was doing is called coercive control. And you don't just walk away because that's when you become in major danger. And so I had, I had a forensic psychiatrist working with me. I had a private investigator working with me. And they were showing me the steps of preparing myself to leave at one point. So obviously I had to change passwords. I had to move money around. I literally, at one point when I felt it was safe to leave, or at least I couldn't deal with it anymore because he saw what was happening, I left. And I had a dark wig. I moved out of my place, started living in hotels. Um, I would rent rental cars under my assistant's name. I couldn't go to work. It's amazing that you have to actually go on the run in your life. Oh, yeah. You know, my wife, Robin, is one of the most active ambassadors uh, for domestic violence in America. Just returned from Capitol Hill, where she testified before a joint uh, committee and Robin talk about the separation assault that that Deborah's referring to here because that is a very dangerous time right yes that is the one of the most dangerous times when you're trying to uh, exit a very dangerous relationship and you seem to be given very important information because it is a time of preparation prepared to leave, not just walk out, because that's when the abuser becomes very aggressive. They feel they've lost control, and they'll do anything to find you. And when they do, a large percentage of the time, I'm going to say over 90% of the time, it ends in death. Because 90%. 90%? Yeah. So Dirty John did bring that out, okay. that um, she did have an investigator, she did have a lawyer, and I remember the lawyer was scared by him. I mean, there's so much more um, to this story. So it is where she did go back to him, but there's also other aspects where she sought help. The only thing that concerns me for people is they may not have the funds right. to seek help. Right. And so, you know, find you know, someone, if, if police won't take you serious, go maybe to a home that helps abuse women. And I'm sure there's volunteers, there's social workers. Hopefully there's someone that can help you get out of this situation. But where she said 90% of the time in these situations, it ends up in death. I mean, that is a very high statistic. Some women are embarrassed to talk yeah. about it. Some just talk to their friends and get bad advice. Yeah. Some think they can fix it. Yeah. And and when we were dealing with this situation with that lady, I knew her life was in danger. I knew it was. And I did a lot of praying and checking on her. And uh, sadly, she ended up going back with them and they moved to California. But um, I was aware that his violence was escalating and... Sometimes I just, like when I, you know, saw a number I didn't recognize, I wondered if it would be someone let me know she was dead. He wanted to get her away mm -hmm. from all the people he did. trying to help. Yeah, he did. But so uh, we'll talk more in the after show convo on co coercive control because I think this is really important to understand. It's that subtle control that they start exerting. And one of the huge signs is isolation from your family. Mm. That is a yeah. huge sign. And so people um, need to know that. And I've also noticed that the nicest, sweetest people are usually the prey for predators like this. You know, again, he targeted Tara because she was a sweetheart, not Jacqueline. And so, um, you know, the antitrust technique that uh, we discuss in After Show Convo on um, uh, outline number two of the two girls that took that man for a ride will also be beneficial for people where you don't automatically trust people. You actually have an antitrust bias, which means you only trust them when they prove they can be trusted. And so, and then just being aware of um, 
you know, your emotional state and not trusting those emotions, you know, uh, when you're first dating someone, if you see signs, be aware. And then we'll also discuss Tara's recovery because it did take a while and she was very traumatized. Mm, yeah, she has to live with it for the rest of her life. Yeah. And her mother will. There has to be blame. Yeah. A little blame. Right? I don't know. I, I I think Deborah's a very strong woman. One thing I've found with S personalities is they don't always believe they are. Really? Yeah, they don't always believe they're strong and smart. Yep. So, all right. So, uh, we we need to start our next, you know, episode before we go to our fun day. Uh, but... Um, which will be the Ted Bundy. Super excited. I know I shouldn't be super excited, but I am. He was interesting in every, every aspect. Yeah. yeah. So I've never had a facial. That's what we're going to do today. Cause you know, like we're batch recording these and never, I've never had a facial and no. never, no. And so I'm excited about that. I mean, what can y'all tell me? Like, well, I hope you get someone good. Okay. Well, it's Elena's, so I think I'm in safe hands. Yes, literally. Don't be scared. It's relaxing. I'm not scared. Don't tense up. Just relax. Enjoy it. Mom likes the relaxation part of it. I like the effect. I want the effect. I want results. Yeah, yeah. I want results. So, yeah. Because I have like this redness on my chin, uh-huh. and one day I want to be able to get regular facials and get rid of that. Yeah. And uh, so. Yeah. You'll you enjoy sunspots, age not you, but no, I'm just saying if you have sunspots, age spots, acne, oh. um, just like different tones in your skin, they just make it look. I so want it to curvy. be even. You yes. do feel good. You yeah. feel good. Well, and I like the <laughs> relaxation too. You know, like I get regular massages. You know, with training. If I don't, I start hurting even with stretching, and um, sometimes you know she's like. Did my face a little but it's not been a facial yeah. and i love them uh because she like works out the kinks and the problems but it's also relaxing what be hard for you maybe is don't ask about every single thing they're doing what are you saying just what just no. relax see no because i like i want to be educated on what they're doing why they're doing it you like the relaxation i do part. I'm, actually, I do. I'm actually pretty chill uh, the one thing I, I do want to tell her is I have sensitive skin. Yeah, so I do that. too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, you'll get education. Okay. Yeah, which I like. I like knowing. Okay. She'll talk as she goes. Tells you what she's doing. Yeah, unless you don't want her to, and she won't talk. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It might depend. Be rude. Be smart. Don't be a victim. But I think we need to go with Elena first. You know, I think it's how y'all are sitting. I keep messing up our taglines. Yeah, and I don't know what I'm supposed to say. <laughs> she did pause. And your yes. rude didn't really sound rude. It's like, yeah. be rude. <laughs> be rude. Okay, that's better. Yeah. Outline of a Murder is a Mr. Joseph production. What do you think, Joseph? Main sources for this episode are the Netflix series Dirty John and Christopher Gofford's excellent podcast, Dirty John. Other sources include Vulture.com, Bizarre.com, Oxygen, Access Live, and a clip from Dr. Phil's interview of Deborah Newell.